If, um, if you didn't know, I finished up the book of Galatians the last time I preached. And so that was, I hope, a blessing for you. It certainly was for me to study through that. And I'm seeking God on, in um, where He will lead me to preach through another book. But He has not shown me for sure yet. So today we're going to look at um, a little more of a topical sermon. If you were here in equipping hour, I, I actually taught some of the background of this. And so I'll, go, I'll briefly go back over that just so everybody knows where we are. But if, you, if you'll turn to Ephesians chapter 6, there's one verse I want to read there. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again, God, for um, just allowing us to gather here. I thank you for all that are here. Um, What a blessing it is to come together with your people and study and worship. God, I pray, Lord, that uh, that's what would be taking place here from this pulpit, would be worship and teaching and preaching, and that you would bring your message, that you would magnify yourself, that Christ would be magnified through this message, God, and that we um, would better understand how to serve you, and how to go and fight your battles. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I remember a long time ago, you can hear a lot of things when you talk about spiritual warfare. Uh, A long time ago, I remember thinking, there's some kind of secret to this. It's like there's these inner keys to spiritual warfare that I really want to figure out. I want to study and learn. And when you talk to a lot of people, you'll hear that kind of a idea, like there's this, this secrecy to it. And you can get a lot of variety when the terms and the, and the topic of spiritual warfare comes up. And so that's what I'm going to talk about today, uh, because we are living in a time, and, and the reality is, this is all times. We can see it more clearly now the spiritual battle that's going on, I think, in our current position with all the unrest, the political unrest, the world unrest, the, the diseases and all of that. But it isn't really any more than normal. The spiritual battle, it's, it's not like it's really getting amped up. It's just being visualized in different ways. The spiritual battle has been going on since Satan started it in the Garden of Eden. And it's going to continue to go on until Jesus puts it to rest finally. But in our current climate, I think it's important that we understand it, uh, what's going on. So let's go back. Um, We're going to go back to the Old Testament a little bit to learn this. And actually, if you'll just turn to Samuel, 1 Samuel. I'm not going to go back over. A lot of the scriptures I went over in equipping hour are the ones. uh, I'm not going to go back over those. I'll just kind of give you a brief overview of what it was. Um, We're going to compare the actual warfare of Old Testament Israel 
to our current spiritual warfare that we're fighting today. And here's something that everybody must understand. If you are born again, then you're in a spiritual battle. You were born into war. You know, if you go back and look at some of the wars that were fought throughout history, and if you were born during that war in that time, your life was a lot different than what we understand here in the United States. We've never been born into war. We've never even had war on our soil as long as anybody here is living, right? Not complete war. We've had attacks, but we've never had a war. Well, when you're born into battle in the middle of a war, your life's different. Growing up's different and everything. Well, guess what? As a Christian, when you're spiritually born into Christ's, king, Christ's kingdom, you're born into that warfare, you don't, we don't get the option of growing up with the bliss childhood. We've got to grow up quick. And if, you haven't, if we haven't matured to this point now, it's time. We've got to do some rapid maturing because the battle is there. We're in the middle of it. And so that's part of what we're doing today. Um, we're in the battle whether you realize it or not. And it's going on around you. And it's going on for you. And that's encouraging to, to know as well. Um, so I made the point this morning... There was something that, that, that the children of Israel would always do if they were to be successful in an actual battle. They always sought the Lord before they went into battle. David would go and pray, God, should I go attack, should I go attack this, these Philistines? And he would get, say yes or no. There were times when he would not do that and it usually didn't work out good for him. But he would, he would seek the Lord or, or the children of Israel would seek the Lord either through direct prayer or they would ask a prophet of God of God and he would tell them yes if you go I'll deliver them into your hand and they would go um, they would also send in spies a lot of times it was important that they understood their enemy if you remember when before Moses entered into the promised land he spent he sent in the spies and they came back with the bad report we're like grasshoppers compared to them they're huge we can't take them um, and so that's what was going on there. But it was very common that they would send in spies. They would want to know who they were up against, what they were up against, um, know their defenses, their tactics, their weaknesses. How do they fight the battle? They wanted to know everything they could about their enemy before going into this attack. And so it's important, as we compare this to our spiritual warfare, we have to know and we have to remember who is the enemy? And we'll get more to that later. And then they would, they would always seek divine assistance. So they've sought the Lord in whether or not to go. And then they would always seek the Lord in how and just for strength. Basically, they understood that if God did not fight the battle for them, they were not going to prevail. You can go all through the Old Testament and sometimes they forgot that, and they would usually um, fail. So it was important that they, they sought divine assistance. They would demonstrate that by um, a lot of times right before the battle, they would sacrifice an animal to the Lord, which was worship for them, offering it up, showing that we are depending on you, God, for this battle. They would also bring the Ark of the Covenant out onto the battlefield, representing that God is with us. This is God's battle. It's not ours. And so just keep all those things um, in your mind 
as, um, as we go forward. And then a lot of times an encouraging address was given either by the commander of the army or by a priest, encouraging them that this is God's fight, that God is with you, and then the battle signal. And I taught this morning there were several types of battle. Most of the battles were hand-to-hand combat, eye-to-eye, face-to-face, sword and spear and shield, and the swiftness of feet, the strength of the man was extremely important in that. Um, sureness of weapons, knowing how to use the weapons, were very, very important. Then you have the ambush. They would hide, use the element of surprise um, as they come through, and you'd get them on both sides. There was a circumvention that would be used where you would fight the battle on the front, you'd circle around and come behind them. So there were different methods of war, but almost all of them were two armies going at each other in a close combat. Um, there were archers in those times as well, but the archers, even, they were less frequent then than they became later on, like in the Middle Ages and all that. But then the final one, one that was a lot more rare, but becomes very important uh, to the nation of Israel, was the selection champions. And this is the one that we're going to focus on today, the selection of champions. This is where both there were times when both sides were aware of the huge loss in battle. These were very tough battles. I mean, when you went full out army against army and all of them yielding swords, then you were going to lose a lot of men, a lot of deaths. And you got to remember in those times, even all the way up to the Civil War, the biggest cause of death was not direct kills. It was infection. I mean, they didn't have antibiotics. And so even a cut on the arm would wind up killing people uh, because it would get infected or they would lose their arm, all kinds of things. And so in order to avoid that sometimes, the two armies or the two countries or whatever it was would send out a champion. They would pick one and say, hey, we'll send our best against your best, and whoever prevails basically wins the war. That way you can go your way, or, or actually they would a lot of times take them into slavery in that case. Um, but at least everybody doesn't die. And so that was what was going on uh, with the story of David and Goliath. Um, each side, or, or actually the Philistines at the time, had selected their champion. So if you'll turn to 1 Samuel 17, we won't, we'll go through this in sections. I'm not going to exposit the entire text. But that's what's going on here in verse 17. I'm just, I'm just going to read down through verse 11. Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle. And were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. They encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines, Named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits 
and a span. Now, if you don't remember the math, six cubits on a basic cubit was 18 inches. A cubit was measured from the elbow to the tip of the finger. So on a basic cubit of that time was 18 inches, which makes Goliath nine and a half feet tall. So he was indeed a giant, nine and a half feet. If you can picture that, a normal ceiling, like a normal level ceiling in your house is usually eight foot. So he would not be able to walk into a normal house. Like the doorway is about seven foot, right? So he wouldn't be able to stand up inside that doorway without hitting his head on that ceiling. Big, big man, okay? Um, so he, he was six cubits in a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he's armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, and a shield-bearer shield went before him. Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So that's kind of the backdrop here. You got the army of the Philistines on one side on a mountain. You got the army of Israel on the other side in a valley below. And it looks like every day Goliath would come down and challenge them. Um, and it, like if you look at verse 9, it defines the terms. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, this is Goliath talking, then we will be your servants. So you come down here. If he kills me, the entire nation of Philistine um, or, or our entire army will become your servants. But if I kill him, then you will come be our servants. So that's the terms. Basically, this is it. Fight me and, and this battle will be done. Um, so they were quite confident in their champion. And why wouldn't you be? If you had Goliath on your team, this is the one this is the type of battle I'd want to fight. Right? Who's gonna send somebody up against nine and a half feet tall? You know his coat, the coat that it talks about that's made of bronze there or brass, was a hundred pounds. That's his armor. How strong is this guy? Uh the the spearhead out on the end of a Shaft, right, would have been roughly 15 pounds. Anybody ever throw shot put in here? A high school shot put is 16 pounds. And you're trying to throw it from here to Kashan. We're putting this thing on a spear and he can... Th the, the point is, this guy is strong. And I can only imagine his voice... When, it, when a man is that big, his voice is probably booming when he comes out there and defies the armies of Israel. Verse 10, it says, I, he, I mean, he's specifically, he's not just defying them in action. He's telling them, I defy the armies of Israel this day. He's insulting them. He's insulting them. He's insulting their God. 
And then came the shepherd boy. David comes. His father had sent him with some supplies to get his brothers were in the army. So he said, basically, it looks like his dad's probably like, hey, take these supplies and, and come back. I want to know what's going on. You go out there and figure out what's going on and come back and tell me. So David shows up, and I won't read all the way through that, um, but skip down to 23. David has now entered the scene, and he's talking with his brothers. And verse 23, it says, Then as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke according to the same words, so David heard them. So David's there talking with his brothers, and he hears this blasphemy. And then look at verse 24 through 26. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. I hope you're getting this picture. And I hope you're not being too judgmental on them, because I think we would all be the same. Nine and a half feet tall, stronger than anybody we've ever seen, booming out. His voice and defiance. I mean, so they were scared. And they're running away. In verse 25, So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches and give him his daughter and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. In verse 26, then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? He asks again. It's a rhetorical question. He's like, you're going to get all of these things? He's offering, Saul is offering all of this? And then look at what he says right there in the next part in verse 26. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. Oh Lord, give us faith like you gave David. Do we ask for that? We see the faith. And listen, it's not because David was better than the other men. No, but it's rather because God had chosen David to be the champion. He prepared him from a youth. If you read on, David says, look, I was out there in the field. And a a lion came and took a lamb. And what did David do? He said, the Lord delivered the lion into my hand. He took it by the jaw and killed it with his hands, with his bare hands. And he says, same thing happened with a bear. That's not by accident. It's not that David was this awesome shepherd out there and all of a sudden he had the faith and the strength and the courage to attack a lion that took his lamb. No, that was God preparing David for this moment even from his youth. He gave him great courage. It was no accident that David had a sling. And he spent all that time out there with the sheep. And maybe some of the other shepherds would not use the time to hone the skills with the sling. But David did. He was no doubt skilled with it. This wasn't some fluke deal. David was prepared. And so it wasn't that he was better, but it was because he was chosen for this purpose. 
verse 27, he says, the, the Lord delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, and he will deliver me from this Philistine. The faith that David had was given to him by God. It was given to him in different ways. First of all, it was given to him by his experience. He had already experienced God's grace. He had already experienced God's power. And it was also given to him directly by God. And so David stepped up to the Lord's battle. And going back, just an overview, they come and put armor on him. Saul put his armor on him. And he was ready to go. It's amazing. They're going to send this kid into battle. Here, here, take my armor. I mean, that's an amazing thing. But he says, he puts it on. He says, I, I can't take this. I haven't proven it. I don't know how to use this. It's too heavy. It's too bulky. I'm a shepherd. So what's he take? He takes a shepherd's weapon. He takes a staff and a sling. And I don't know if you know what a sling is. Has anybody ever used a sling in here? It's not a slingshot like the kind people think of. That's not what it is. It's a sling and a stone, which means it's got a little pouch, just a and it, it's not they're not hard to make. Little pouch, little patch of leather or something like that with two strings on the end of it. And you put one string on your thumb and you hold the other end and you put a stone inside that and you sling it like this and you let go of the the one string and the momentum of the sling is what hurls the stone and they're fun to play with you can't but make sure nobody's around because you have very little control of where that thing's going especially when you first start learning i used to play with one when a kid and it ricochet it sound like a bullet i mean these things you can kill stuff with it this is legit okay this is a legitimate weapon it was a legitimate weapon for shepherds David knew how to do it. And so he went down to the river and he got five smooth stones. And he was ready for battle with a staff and a sling. And now skip down to verses 42. Now let's back up to 40. Then he took his staff in his hand and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook. And put them in a shepherd's bag and a pouch which he had. And his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. And so the Philistine came and began drawing near to David, and the man who bore the shield went before him. So he had a, he had a guy carrying his shield, which that guy was probably pretty strong too. May have taken two, I don't know. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking. He's a little baby-faced kid. And like I said before, we don't know how big he was, but it didn't matter. He could have been the biggest man in Israel, and he would have been dwarfed by Goliath. And so he comes up. He's got this rosy cheeks, and it makes Goliath mad. He gets mad. Why? It's almost like they're mocking him. You're going to send? This is who you're going to send? And so the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with, a, with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and of the beasts and the beast of the fields. I'm going to kill you, kid. At first it's a little bit funny, like, ha, ha, ha. You're gonna sit, and then he gets mad. I'm going to slaughter you. 
I'm going to leave your body here to feed to the birds. Would that be intimidating? Yeah. Giant standing there with a sword and a spear, full armor, and you're standing out there with a shepherd's staff and a stone. But look at what David said in verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. It does not matter what your weapons are. You got all that stuff, that's all great. I have God. He's on my side, and you have defied him. See, Goliath was not the enemy of David. Goliath was the enemy of God in this case. He was standing in the way of God's work. He was standing in the way of God's army. And David was merely an instrument of God to move him out of the way. We must remember that when we start looking at the battles that we are fighting today. We must make sure that those are God's battles and not our own. Look at verse 46. He says, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. If God doesn't do it, David goes out there with nothing but a stick and a stone against the best war, the best weapons of the time and the, probably the best warrior of the time, no doubt. And so David knows... The only way he wins this battle is if God wins it for him. And I'll just let you know, any kind of spiritual battle that we enter into, the only way we win it is if God wins it for us. We would do well to remember that. We'll get more to that as we go. But it says, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. He's coming to him. And you notice there, he doesn't, David doesn't even have a sword. He says, I'm going to cut your head off. That's faith. That's faith in knowing that he is going to win this battle. He does, and... God is going to win the battle. So let's read down through there. In verse 48, So it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, that David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. Then David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone, and he slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead so that the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the earth. Just like that. Just that quick. With God on his side, the battle was over before it hardly even got started. Goliath never even had a chance to swing his sword. He never even had a chance to throw a spear because David was fighting for God. And just so you know, that's a hard shot to make with a sling. I'm sure David was honed in his skills. I'm sure he was great with a sling. But to make that shot on the run, that's the power of God. God guided it in and embedded it into his forehead. He drops and then 
In verse 50, so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore, David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. They fled. The champion, their champion, had fallen. So what is the secret? What is the secret to spiritual warfare? What is the secret to understanding how to fight these battles? Turn to Hosea. Hosea chapter 13. Verse 14. It says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. Pity is hidden from my eyes. And then flip over to 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter 15. Starting at verse 55. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is in sin, and the strength of sin is, it is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The secret to spiritual warfare is actually quite simple. It is that our champion has already won. The battle after Goliath fell was extremely easy for the Israelites. They charged the battlefield. The Philistines fled, which, by the way, they didn't keep their end of the deal. They were supposed to become the servants. Guess what? Our enemy's not going to keep the end of the deal either. But they fled, and the, the Israelites could easily overtake them and enjoy the spoils of war. Why? Because David was chosen that day to be the champion. David is a picture of Christ. And Christ has been chosen to be our champion. And he did it in such an odd way. Just like David goes down there with a stick and a sling against the most... Incredible weapons, an incredible warrior. Our champion comes and he does not go about it in what we would expect. He does not go about it in what Israel expected. He comes in meek and mild. He lived a perfect life. And how did he defeat this enemy of death? How did he do it? By dying? How does that make sense? That doesn't make sense. Well, that's not when he defeated it. He did die. He died under the wrath of God, but he defeated death. How? By raising 
again. He come out of the grave. And when he came out of that grave and they come and the, the, the tomb's empty, where has he gone? What have they done with him? And he's standing there. Death could not hold him. It was an impossibility for death to behold him. He is sovereign over death too. Remember, he's the one that pronounced death on mankind. He has that capability to overcome it. But that's not the reason. The reason death couldn't hold him, the reason the grave, the reason the grave couldn't hold him was because he was absolutely, without a doubt, perfect. He became sin for a period for us. But when they put him in the grave, he was still Jesus. He was still Christ. He was still the chosen champion of his people, and he comes out of the grave. That's the secret to spiritual warfare. The secret is we don't have to fight it. So, what are we told to do? So, that, that, then, then you get the other end of the camp, you get in the other ditch, and people just say, well, you don't do anything. No, no, no. No, that's not true. The nation of Israel charged the battlefield after their champion had won. So what are we told to do? The war is already won in God's economy. It's won. It's as good as being, it is as complete in His economy as it could possibly be. We just don't see it quite that way yet. It is just like your salvation. If you are born again in Christ... Your salvation is complete to the end. He that has begun a good work in you will finish it. But yet, you're still here and you're still in a struggle, right? I've heard the term, you're saved, but you're also being saved, and you also will be saved, right? It's the same way with this battle that's going on right here. The battle is won. It's already complete. However, there's still battles being fought, and ultimately we will see the end. But God doesn't operate in our time, right? So He, he, he can do that. But yet, we're still here. So we're still left with battles to fight. But isn't it, isn't it an awesome thing to know you're fighting a battle that you're absolutely going to win? When you already know the end... There can be times when it looks bad in the middle of the battle, but you already know you're going to win at the end. Makes it a lot easier to fight, right? But the, the, when we look now at a couple of important points on spiritual warfare, number one is it's not an earthly battle. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Back in Ephesians, the war is against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness of this age. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. He said, if my kingdom were of this world, my followers would fight. They would physically, they, he said, they physically would have fought to keep him from being crucified if his kingdom was of this world. But that isn't the plan. God's plan was to send the champion. And he was to do it through the cross through the grave, through the resurrection. So that's why his people didn't fight at the time. He was to go himself to win this. And so we must remember, the people who we encounter are not the enemy. 
That is a hard thing to remember sometimes. Because a lot of times they act like the enemy. And a lot of times they're working for the enemy. But how do you fight against something you can't see? It's not against the people. It's against principalities. It's against powers, rulers in high places, spiritual wickedness. We're talking about demons. The battle's being fought over us. Angels and demons are fighting. So how do we fight against this? How do we fight against something we can't see? Against something you can't touch? Well, it's simple. You turn to your champion. Right? You turn to your champion. Isn't that the way? The way the Philistines wanted to go forward? They had the best warriors. So, hey, let's not fight this whole battle. Let's just send Goliath. Oh, but Goliath was defeated. But we have a champion that cannot be defeated. And he will not be defeated. So when you struggle with this, turn to him. Turn to the one who can see the battle. He can see it as clear as day. Turn to the one who can touch them. He can see them. He can touch him. Matter of fact, he controls him. Second thing is, we fight the Lord's battles and not ours. We are to defend Christ. We're to defend His kingdom. We're to fight for Him, not us. Listen to what Spurgeon said on this topic. He said, Full often, when we get into little tempers and our blood is roused, we are apt to think that we are fighting the cause of truth when we are really maintaining our own pride. We imagine that we are defending our master, but we are defending our own little selves. Wow, it's encouraging to know that Spurgeon dealt with the same thing I deal with, because that hits home for me. And it probably hits home for you. There's lots of times we will be slandered and we get all upset and mad about it. But we probably deserve it. I can't remember the exact quote. Spurgeon also said, don't get upset when people talk bad about you. They're probably not even... I'm summarizing here. It's probably not near as bad as you actually are. And that's the truth. But we're to fight the battle for Christ. We're to fight the battle for the Lord. So we fight the Lord's battle as not ours. And that's hard to... Sometimes that's hard to distinguish. And So how do we distinguish that? Well, before we enter into that, we'd do well to look to the example of the Hebrews before they entered into actual battle. We would seek Him. We would seek our champion in prayer. We would seek Him in a diligent way. And this is, I promise you, this is coming to me. I do not spend enough time in prayer. I don't even come close. And I would be willing to bet that most of you out there could say the same thing. We don't spend enough time preparing for battle. And and like Darren was asking me, he's like, sometimes you don't have, you know, there's these things come up. And and maybe you don't have time. Maybe you don't, maybe it's a spot of the moment thing. How much time do we waste in our lives? 
not seeking God. And, and when it comes to like evangelism, because part of the spiritual battle is proclaiming this truth to the lost and dying world, right? That is definitely part of it. Bringing in truth. Bringing in the gospel message. Tell them, telling them about our champion. How many times do we pray for divine appointments? That God would send us somebody to witness to that day. And if we're praying for that and we're asking God, hey, is there a battle for me today? Prepare me for it. But we don't ask Him. And so they may come and we don't even recognize them. Or they may not come because we don't ask. So I encourage you, I encourage me to spend more time in preparation for that. And so how is this done? Turn back to Ephesians. And I'll go quickly through the armor that God has provided. It is an amazing thing that Paul does here as he, he compares the armor of a physical armor, a physical battle, to the spiritual armor that God has given us. Ephesians 6 13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. How are you to withstand this evil day? It's simple. God. It's by God. You will trust in him. You will be able to stand. That's why it says take up the whole armor of God. We're going to go through that. Look at verse 14. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Girded. It was a belt. So you remember that Paul is in prison, and he's, so he's seen a lot of Roman soldiers. So I have no doubt he's looking at a Roman armor here um, and making the comparison to what we see in spiritual warfare. And he says, when you study the Roman armor... Everything tied together with the belt. Without the belt, it all fell off. Um, it was extremely important. Um, and he says, gird it together with truth. So what Paul's saying here is the main weapon, both for defense and offense, in fighting, in fighting a spiritual battle, is with truth. It's not with feelings. It's not with spiritual gifts. It is with truth. It has to be based in truth. If you don't base your spiritual battle in truth, you will have nothing. None of the other armor will be there. It has to be based in truth. And he says the breastplate of righteousness. This is the armor that covers the chest. It covers the, the vital organs, Right? Extremely important to protect the heart, the lungs. Because a blow to them with an axe or a sword or a spear is, especially in those times, that's a death sentence. You're not surviving that. So the breastplate is extremely important. And he says, what is the breastplate? It's righteousness. In spiritual warfare, you can rest in the fact that you cannot be killed. I'm not talking about physical death. You can be killed in that. We've been going through church history. 
many, many Christians have been taken, have had their physical life taken from them. But you cannot have your spiritual life taken. They cannot take it. It is secure. Why? Because it's protected by the righteousness of Christ. And there is nothing more secure than that. It's perfect. It cannot be penetrated. So the first step in pursuing the defeated army is to have our mind based in the truth and righteousness of Christ. Verse 15, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace. This is what makes it all possible. This is what makes it all worth it. The gospel of peace is the fact that our champion has already defeated the enemy. That is the gospel. It's what he did for us. Without it, there is no truth to gird up our loins. There is no righteousness. But I love the fact that he looks at the shoes here. Because the gospel's meant to go forth. It's meant to pursue the enemy of sin in the world. But the only thing that will cure it. And the Romans, did you know the Romans in that time actually invented cleats? They were the ones that first put studs on the bottom of their feet. And the reason was so they could get better traction. Same reason we use them now, right? But they would use their shields. They would make a shield wall. And the Roman shield was long and tall. And then the guys would come up behind them and make a, a um, top. And it was almost like a tank. And they were the ones that invented this too. And so they, would, they could actually move into an army and push them wherever they wanted to go because they had cleats on their shoes. And so when we look at that comparison, we, we think about the gospel. It's made to go forth. And, but it's, sometimes it's a slow process. But it's made to dig in and not back up. And I think we got a time in our country where there's many Christians wanting to slide backwards. They're, wanting to, they're not digging in with the gospel. Their soles are slick. Or they don't have their shoes on in the first place. They're not even shod with the gospel. We're living in a time where Christians need to dig in and push forward. And it might be painful physically. But He's given us the equipment to do it with. And it's the gospel. The love of Jesus Christ and Him crucified is our cry. You want to end abortion? Preach the gospel. You want to end racism? Preach the gospel. You want to end sex slavery? Preach the gospel. It is the advancement of the gospel that makes the demons tremble. It's not getting rid of specific sins. They don't care. You can get rid of one, they'll replace it with another. But you advance the gospel and the demons tremble. Look at verse 16. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Faith in Christ. Faith in our champion. Faith in His work and not our own. Remember how David seemed so fearless? The young shepherd boy with nothing but a sling and a stone? That was not him, but it was his faith in God. 
And it's the same with us. As long as we keep our trust in Christ, Satan can do nothing. The, the Roman shield was an amazing thing because they would actually put wool on them. What was the wool for? Well, the Romans would fight and the, part of their shield wall was so beneficial because by this time in history, we started seeing a lot more archers. And they would be staged way back behind the army and they would launch them and they would come down and kill Right? Well, the Romans figured out their shields, they make a shield wall that comes up and over the top. When the archers came, they ducked down. They were basically rendered useless. So what did people start doing? Light the arrows on fire. If we can get the arrows to fly through the air on fire, hit the shield, then it catches the shield on fire and you, you've penetrated the shield wall, right? So the Romans would actually take wool and put them on the front of the shield and wet them down before they went into battle. So when the fiery arrows or the fiery darts came, as soon as they hit the shield, they just went out. It was, I mean, they were brilliant war tacticians. But what Paul is saying here is, we have a shield of faith. And if our faith is placed in the right person, Jesus Christ, whatever Satan throws at you, as soon as it hits true faith, it will be quenched. He will try all kinds of tactics. He'll put the fire on the darts and send them your way. But with faith in Christ, and we remain there, His tactics are rendered useless. And then in verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. As the breastplate of righteousness protects your spiritual, vital organs, ultimately your salvation protects your head. Obviously, this is a kill shot as well, right? And this helmet of salvation is protected. I mean, the helmet of salvation protects your spiritual life. It's protected by the righteousness of Christ and His salvation that is given to you. Do not be afraid. And then it says, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And just if you look back at David, he had to learn how to use... He, he didn't take the sword because he didn't know how to use it. Now, you, you remember later, David becomes a great warrior. He, and he doesn't always use the sling. He doesn't continue to do that. At some point, he learns how to use a sword. Right? And as David had to learn to use a physical sword, we should learn to use our spiritual sword, the Word of God. And trust me, you want to make the demons tremble? You want to make them scared? You want to make them retreat? The Word of God is what will do it. It can be used to ward them off. It can be used to heal their victims. Because they're at work. They're at work in our current time. And there's people hurting today. People you know. People I know. That have been victimized by demonic influence. And the Word of God can be used to heal that. It is where the rest of the armor comes from. Pick it up. Study it. You also, But remember this. The sword also hung from the belt of the soldier. So it's very important as we study the Word that we learn to study it correctly so that it is all based in truth. So all of this is based in truth. And then verse 18, here's the real key. To what you do. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. 
being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Pray. Remember, before battle, any battle was engaged, what would happen? They would seek the Lord. They would ask Him if they should go to battle. The reality is this, for most Christians, we do not pray enough. The spiritual warfare is fought on our knees. That doesn't mean we don't ever get up and go do something. We do. But the majority of the spiritual warfare is fought on our knees. Why? Because Jesus has already won the war and we have access to Him. We can approach the throne of grace with boldness. We have this ability. And it's already accomplished in God's realm. So what we need... We need more connection with Him. We need more confidence in Him. We need more faith in Him. How do we get that? Through studying the Word and through prayer. Because He's left us here to finish the fight. And this is not going to be accomplished without much prayer. But with much prayer and diligence and truth, we will find ourselves charging the enemy... Because after all, their champion has fallen. And ours is seated at the right hand of the Father. Let's pray. Father, I ask you this morning to forgive me for my lack of diligence in prayer. And engaging in this spiritual battle. I pray, God, that you would give me more faith and more strength and more desire for your word. More desire to know your truth. More desire to draw close to you. And I pray that for each one here as well. God, let us trust in you, our champion. Let us remember that this battle's won. We are privileged to get to come along. I also pray, God, if there's anyone here who, do, who does not know you, who has not bowed this knee, who has not recognized you as a Savior, I pray that you would grant them repentance today, that they would believe, that they would believe the gospel, that they would trust in you. And I pray that you would give us strength as we go different ways until until you bring us back together for more encouragement, more strength, and more worship, that we would honor you and serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.